from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. I know it seems like we just released our last news roundup, but hey, that's the passing of time, I guess. It's the end of April, which means that it's time for the Terra Informa team to round up the environmental news headlines from the past month. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Amiskwichiwaskigan, Beaver Hills House, Edmonton on Treaty 6 land. CJSR 88.5 FM broadcasts from unrecognized Papas Chase territory, a people who were displaced by the efforts of colonists and colonial governments. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homeland of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. The lands that we live on are stolen lands and have been used by settler colonial industries for wealth and resource accumulation. Last week, on April 22nd, it was Earth Day. It's fantastic that there's a day where people are encouraged to celebrate the planet and the beautiful places we get to call home. But in addition, we should be thinking about how we can contribute or help to promote Indigenous land ownership, resource management, and cultural protection in the places that we live as part of conservation and biodiversity protection. There is no climate justice without land back. This week, we're catching you up on all the environmental news headlines you might have missed in the past month. We've got an update on grizzly bear populations in Alberta, a rundown of Ottawa's constitutional carbon tax, updates from land and water defenders across Turtle Island, and more. To start us off on a national story, here's Terra Informer Sonic Patel discussing the Supreme Court of Canada's recent decision that the federal carbon tax is constitutional. Hello listeners. On March 25th, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled on a case challenging the legality of the federal government's carbon pricing regime, which is more commonly known as the carbon tax. The verdict, the carbon tax, is constitutional. This decision has major implications, allowing the federal government to continue one of the largest instruments at the center of their carbon reduction plan. So, let's talk about this landmark case. A carbon tax is considered one of the most effective economic tools to reduce carbon emissions. The carbon tax puts a price on releasing greenhouse gas emissions, incentivizing producers to seek ways to reduce their emissions to reduce their costs. Consumers face higher prices for goods and services that are carbon-intensive, encouraging them to choose climate-friendly products and behaviors. Carbon taxes have been proven to be able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in jurisdictions around the world. The federal government included a carbon tax as part of the Pan-Canadian Framework on Clean Growth and Climate Change, our national climate action plan developed to be in line with Canada's commitment to limit the average global warming in the Paris Agreement. The price of carbon is currently $30 a ton, but is planned to rise to $170 a ton by 2030, 
as part of an effort to reduce carbon emissions by 30% relative to our 2005 levels. The carbon tax was implemented in 2019, but only applies to provinces that did not already have adequate carbon pricing plans. The carbon tax was not well received by everyone. Among the dissenters were Jason Kenney, Premier of Alberta, Scott Moe, Premier of Saskatchewan, and Doug Ford, Premier of Ontario. These three provinces took the carbon tax to court in three separate cases, challenging its legitimacy. So, what's the case? Well, to get into that, we need a quick refresher on governance in Canada. Canadian governments are not hierarchical. Instead, the Constitution of Canada delegates separate powers to the provincial and federal governments. This is called the Constitutional Distribution of Legislative Power. Broadly, the federal government has power over matters of national interest, including the Postal Service, currency and banking, national defense, and issues that cross boundaries, either between provinces or between countries. The provincial governments have power over matters of local nature, like municipalities, healthcare, education, and natural resources. The federal government cannot regulate on matters within the provincial jurisdiction. This is called ultra vires, which is Latin for beyond the powers. This is the case brought before the courts. The three opposing provinces call the carbon tax an overreach into provincial matters, as the environment is within provincial jurisdiction. A lawyer representing Saskatchewan called it, quote, a big brother type of legislation, end quote. The federal government claims the issue falls into federal jurisdiction, as greenhouse gases are pollutants without borders. As climate change threatens the nation as a whole, the federal government believes they should have the tools to address the issue. These cases started in provincial courts, where the appeal courts of Saskatchewan and Ontario upheld the law, while the Alberta Court of Appeal ruled against it. Ultimately, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled in support of the federal government. Chief Justice Richard Wagner issued a statement on the decision. He stated that the federal government can take the lead on climate action, as the threat of climate change crosses borders and is of national concern. The court ruled this is in line with a clause in the Constitution called Peace, Order, and Good Government, or POG. POG gives the federal government the authority to enact laws that deal with issues that threaten the entire nation. The POG doctrine applies when there is a provincial inability to deal with the matter, and if the failure of one or more provinces to cooperate would prevent the other provinces from successfully addressing it. Chief Justice Wagner stated that a patchwork approach of varying carbon pricing standards across the country if carbon pricing were provincial jurisdiction, would hinder the ability of the nation to reduce carbon emissions. Quote, any province's refusal to implement a sufficiently stringent greenhouse gas pricing mechanism could undermine greenhouse gas pricing everywhere in Canada. End quote. What's more, the federal government wasn't considered to be overbearing, as the regulation doesn't tell the province how to implement the carbon price just what the minimum price needs to be. Wagner states that the impact on the province's freedom to legislate is minimal. Quote, They are free to design any greenhouse gas pricing system they choose, 
as long as they meet the federal government's outcome-based targets. With no courts left for further appeal, it seems the federal carbon tax is here to stay. It remains to be seen how these three provinces will respond. When Premier Kenny was asked whether he would restore Alberta's own carbon tax, scrapped in 2019 by the newly elected United Conservative Party government, Kenny did not have a definitive answer. In the absence of provincial leadership on carbon pricing, this court case is key in establishing jurisdiction for Canada to be united in our climate action efforts. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sonic. Next, we're moving to Alberta. Here's Elizabeth Dowdell with a story about Parkland County residents' concern over a proposed church development near a local lake. This past month, several outlets reported on a local story involving the construction of a new $22 million religious retreat center near Chickakoo Lake in Parkland County, Alberta. In 2018, the county approved the development permit for the site, but some users of the lake and recreation area opposed the project for environmental reasons related to a recent water diversion application. The new building, which is currently under construction, will replace the church hall and meeting rooms, replace the cabins with a guest house, build a walkway between the church hall and guest house, and include underground parking. No change in capacity or number of visitors is anticipated. The construction made headlines recently because of a 6,355 cubic meter per year water application that accompanies the building, which was made after construction had begun. Water is the chief concern of the Chickakoo Water Protection Group, a Facebook group of concerned citizens who are working together to bring attention to the municipal development approval process and their questions about public engagement, jurisdiction, and environmental protection. This is where it gets a bit messy and why the new development is interesting. For reference, Chickakoo Lake and Recreation Area is over 480 acres of woodlands, lakes, and ponds, with hiking trails, picnic sites, and a playground. In 2014, Parkland County recognized the lake complex as an environmentally significant area with very high environmental sensitivity. The Mount Carmel Spirituality Center is located near the south edge of the Recreation Area, just off a gravel road. The development permit for the new center was filed in 2018 and required public notice. Anyone living within one kilometer of the project was notified by mail, and the general public informed through an ad in the local paper. Because, you know, everybody reads their local print newspaper. An appeal of the permit was made and withdrawn in the summer of 2018, and in 2019, a meeting of the whole and open house took place. So, public engagement was done, but it wasn't necessarily shouted from the rooftops that a new building was proposed and could be contested if citizens were concerned. A desktop review of environmental impacts was conducted by the Parkland County biologist who found the site was part of a wildlife corridor, but not part of sensitive wildlife range. And a desktop groundwater sensitivity analysis was also conducted, but no issues seem to have been reported. Residents have argued that last point, suggesting the lake and wetlands around the spirituality center are getting drier, causing concern about short and long-term aquifer health and any application to draw water from the area. You know, like that 6,355 cubic meters per year of water the center just applied for. The thing is, this water might never actually be drawn because it isn't for the building's use per se. It's for a provincial fire code requirement. This is where jurisdiction comes into play. The province requires a fire suppression pond be maintained for the building, and that's what the recent application is for. 
the county did their due diligence, or so they claim, in the development permit approval, which is a municipal approval that only deals with municipal regulations. Yet, residents feel like the county is passing the buck in terms of environmental protection because the county isn't doing enough to protect water in the recreation area. The water withdrawal application is still working its way through the provincial process, and I couldn't find any update on that, but the Chickakoo Water Protection Group has vowed to argue at every level of government that the application be refused. Further, the Water Protection Group has spurred Parkland County to review its public engagement and development approval process to make sure this sort of confusion doesn't happen again. This story doesn't have a conclusion yet, but it highlights how convoluted development and environmental protection can be for the average citizen to follow and stay engaged with. With funding cuts and budget constraints at all levels of government, this story reflects how citizens can and need to take an increasing interest and role in ensuring due diligence, public consultation, and protection for their favorite natural spaces. Thanks, Elizabeth. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, broadcasting from so-called Edmonton, Alberta. This week, we're covering some environmental news headlines from the month of April. Next, I'll take us to Alberta's mountains and forests with an update from FRI Research on an updated grizzly bear population count that took place in 2018, and an interview with a real-life bear counter. If you visit the Rocky Mountains in Alberta, grizzly bears are everywhere or at least the likenesses of them are. These big mamas and papas are a kind of symbol in the Rocky Mountains. You see them on t-shirts, restaurant signs, and statues of them guard grocery stores and gas stations once you enter any of the mountain parks. But how are the actual bears doing? Grizzly bears were listed as a threatened species in Alberta in 2010, after being recommended for a threatened designation in 2002, and after a moratorium on sport hunting was introduced in 2006. A 2010 report produced by the Government of Alberta and the Alberta Conservation Association estimated that there were 691 grizzly bears in Alberta at the time, with 359 of those likely being of breeding age. In order to know how a species is doing, it's important to know how many of them there are. The FRI Research Grizzly Bear Program has conducted grizzly bear population inventories in the province's bear management units starting in 2004 as part of provincial recovery efforts. In 2018, FRI's Grizzly Bear Program partnered with Alberta Environment and Parks, Miller Western, which is a forestry products company, Spray Lake Sawmills, Vanderwell Contractors, and West Fraser Mills to do two population inventories. The first ever grizzly bear count of Swan Hills Bear Management Unit Number 7, south of Lesser Slave Lake, and a recount of Clearwater Bear Management Unit Number 4 in the foothills east of Banff National Park. The objectives of these bear counts is to get an up-to-date estimate of the grizzly bear populations in these areas. To do this, field crews collected grizzly bear hair samples from nearly 400 sites between the two study areas. The hair is then taken to a lab, where the DNA from the hair is used to identify individual bears and estimate the size of the population. 
The Terra Informa team just so happens to have a connection to one of the field crew members from the 2018 bear count. Here is Hannah Schoenberg answering some of my questions about what bear counting is like. Which bear management unit did you work in? I was working in BMA4, so the Clearwater region. This was the area that they were resurveying. So how did you collect the grizzly bear hair? Yeah, so to collect the hair, we set up bait stations. So you go to a GPS point, and when you're there, you set up um, like a pile of just random logs that you found and moss and other debris so you can build up an area. And then around that, you put uh, a string of barbed wire about knee height. Um, and then you pour blood and oil onto the bait pile and then that will attract the bears and then they'll either go under or over your barbed wire and your hope is that it catches a little bit of their hair and then you'll go back and collect that in two weeks. Whose blood do you use? (laughs) I use cow's blood from slaughterhouses so it's just the excess waste that they have and they give you just like some buckets of kind of Uh, sludge waste and then you sieve it out so there's no food rewards in there for the bears and it's just pure blood. Did you have any bear encounters while you were working this job? We actually didn't have a single bear encounter despite the fact that we were hiking around with blood in our bags and going to places that we had just poured blood out at. Um, We saw one grizzly from the truck and one black bear from the truck when we were just driving around not even near our sites so yeah. We were surprised, but we didn't see a single bear. (laughs) What was the most memorable moment from your job? I think probably the most memorable thing was the first time we sieved the blood. It was a slightly shocking experience, and the smell will always stay with me, I think. (laughs) Because it's really old, rancid blood (laughs) that's been in buckets for a long time. And this is in the summer, so it's getting hot. Yeah, you burp the buckets to make sure that they don't explode. So that was fairly memorable. You can't forget that. And lastly, any bear safety tips? Uh, Bear safety tips, uh, just be really loud when you're out in the forest. That's what we always did. I think that's probably why we didn't see any bears. Um, Keep an eye out for signs of bears, like scat, prints, that kind of thing. Those are my main tips, I would say. Don't have any attractants on you, like blood or (laughs) anything else that smells good. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. In March of this year, FRI Research released the results of the 2018 bear count for bear management units 4 and 7. The population estimate for grizzly bears in management unit 4, that was the one that was getting recounted, is 88 bears, which is up from 42 bears in 2008. FRI estimates that there are between 59 and 130 bears living in the area meaning that the population has doubled in the past 13 years, giving it an annual rate of increase of 6%. Now, why did the grizzly bear population increase in this bear management unit? The report released by researchers say that it's too soon to know right now, but they are currently looking into if landscape changes in the area have had some kind of impact on grizzly bear populations. In management unit 7, the one that was getting counted for the first time, there were some issues with low detection rates, meaning that the precision of the count is lower. 39 individual bears were detected in the area, and FRI recommends that a population estimate of 62 bears be used for wildlife management purposes. Researchers on the Grizzly Bear Project don't know exactly why they detected so few bears in the management area. One potential reason is that there were so many black bears in the area 
that it influenced grizzly bears coming to the sampling sites, or that the black bears messed up the hair snag sites before the grizzly bears were able to visit them. If you want to read FRI's summary report or take a look at the full study results, there is a link to the project page on our website. Thanks to Hannah Schoenberg for giving us an inside look into that story. Next, we'll move west to British Columbia, where Andrea Miller will give us an update on tensions around a forestry blockade at Ferry Creek. North of Port Renfrew, in the mossy, temperate rainforest of coastal Vancouver Island, is the Ferry Creek watershed, a 1,200-hectare region home to stands of old-growth yellow cedar. Since last August, as many as seven separate camps of protesters have formed a blockade to protect Ferry Creek, what they call the last intact old-growth forest on Vancouver Island, from logging by Surrey-based teal cedar products. Ferry Creek is unceded Pachidat First Nation territory. The nation is in ongoing negotiations with Canada and British Columbia together with the Dididat First Nation to secure their rights to this territory. The blockade has primarily been led by a group called the Rainforest Flying Squad, a self-described, volunteer-driven, grassroots, non-violent direct action movement who refer to themselves as visitors in Pachidat territory. Teal Cedar Products holds tenure to the nearly 600 square kilometer tree farm license, number 46, which includes part of the Ferry Creek watershed. The company maintains that only 200 hectares of the 1,200 hectare watershed are available for logging, with most of Ferry Creek being either protected forest reserve or unstable terrain for logging. For comparison, the stand of Douglas firs at Cathedral Grove in Macmillan Provincial Park that you may have visited is around 150 hectares. On April 1st, the BC Supreme Court granted Teal Cedar an injunction, meaning that they can remove the protesters from blocking road access, but the RCMP have yet to be called in to enforce the injunction and remove the Rainforest Flying Squad blockaders. The blockaders are acting on the support and guidance of Pachidat elder Bill Jones, who in a statement on the Rainforest Flying Squad website says that Ferry Creek is a sacred place for the Pachidat, and any damage to the watershed through logging activities would be heartbreaking. Other community members have voiced their opposition to the logging activities independently of the nation, condemning the provincial government for permitting logging of old-growth forests, defined by the province as forests containing trees that are more than 250 years old. The blockade is part of increasing criticism of the provincial government for not moving fast enough on implementing 14 recommendations to protect old-growth ecosystems outlined in the Old Growth Strategic Review, a report created by an independent panel and released by the province last year. In their urgency to protect the old growth in Ferry Creek, the blockaders have also faced criticism for not building good relationships with the Pachidat. They appear to be acting without the consent of the nation on an issue that concerns the management of forestry resources in Pachidat sovereign territory. Forestry has long been a part of lives and livelihood for the Pachidat, and the nation has relied on the employment and economic opportunities of logging in this region for generations. 
Teal Cedar has entered into agreements with the Pachidat, and the nation signed a revenue-sharing agreement with the province in 2017, meaning that they are compensated for any timber cut on their land. The nation is also taking steps to create economic opportunities for the community through community-led forestry initiatives in their territory. In an April 12th statement by Pachidat Hereditary Chief Frank Kisto Jones and Chief Counselor Jeff Jones, the nation issued a clear reminder that the community has always harvested and managed their forestry resources, including old-growth cedar, for ceremonial, domestic, and economic use. They retain ownership over their territory, and that includes ownership of decisions around the development of their forestry resources. In the statement, the nation shares that they have secured commitments from tenure holders and the provincial government to suspend all forestry activities as they develop their integrated resource stewardship plan. This community-led strategy will identify traditional land use areas for conservation and guide any forestry activities in their territory. The nation is requesting no interference in the decision-making process as they determine the way forward, stating that, quote, we do not welcome or support unsolicited involvement or interference by others in our territory, including third-party activism, end quote. In response, the Ferry Creek Blockade issued a statement on their social media in which they state that they will continue to stand with Pachidot Elder Bill Jones in demanding an end to old-growth logging and that it is the responsibility of the provincial government to intervene and take steps to transition to a forestry economy that is both ecologically responsible while creating viable economic opportunities for the Pachidat. Thanks, Andrea. Now to finish this week's episode, here are some updates from Indigenous land and water defenders across Turtle Island. In northwestern British Columbia, the Gatineau are creating a new Indigenous protected area to protect a watershed that is important for salmon spawning. Rivers in Gatineau territory that were once bustling with activity, with up to 50,000 sockeye salmon traveling up the tributary, have now seen a huge decline in fish abundance, with the spawning population down to about 200 salmon. Eight years ago, the 24,000 hectare Hanna Tintina Conservancy was established to protect the Nass River sockeye. However, since then, sockeye that spawn in the conservancy area have declined, partially due to changing water temperature in the creeks. Now, healthier populations exist outside the conservancy area, but these creeks are threatened by mineral exploration. In 2012, the Gatineau hereditary chiefs worked with the government of British Columbia to sign the Gatineau Who Wilt Recognition and Reconciliation Agreement, which led to the creation of a land use plan, a collaborative management system, an Indigenous guardian program, and the creation of the previously mentioned conservancy. Later, when the Gatineau Nation started to notice changes in the landscape, they asked the government to expand the conservancy in order to meet the need for adaptive management for species like salmon that was recognized in the agreement. However, according to an article in the Narwhal, the government seemed to say that's not going to fly with industry. And the industries that the government was referring to weren't the ones involved with the forestry activity set into the agreement, but mining companies. In British Columbia, 
They have a free entry mining system that allows mining companies to explore for minerals anywhere in the province that isn't already a protected area, including private land and Indigenous territory. And under provincial laws, no consultation or consent is required. Getinyao chiefs are now taking matters into their own hands and have decided to move forward with an Indigenous protected area after four years of unsuccessfully trying to work with the province to protect an additional 30,000-plus hectares around the Conservancy area. This story came from a fantastic article written for the Narwhal by reporter Matt Simmons. We will keep an eye out for more news to share with you on the Getinyao's work towards creating an Indigenous protected area. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, for past episodes, or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.